Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening. I am Chantal Lafontante, and I'm wel- and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple Best in Journalism um, award-winning public affairs program celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. The Bring It On crew has prepared a special broadcast of relevant and memorable interviews from their archives. Let's begin with a pre-recorded show called Elementary Genocide, dated from August 11th, 2014. The conversation is hosted by Bring It On anchors Beth Smith and William Hosea, and they welcome award-winning journalist and filmmaker Rahim Shabazz. His film Elementary Genocide, Genocide exposes an alleged socially engineered mechanism created by our government, which util- utilizes the public school system to label elementary-aged African-American males as work-for-hire targets within the U.S. prison system. Elementary Genocide confirms this theory and seeks to educate parents, teachers, and families so that we can reclaim our young men and ensure the future of our community. Here now is that broadcast. Look at the reading level of black boys at the conclusion of elementary school, which is normally fourth or fifth grade, to determine, to predict how many new prison cells they'll need in the next decade. Statistically, if a black boy cannot read by the time he finishes the fifth grade, there's a 75% chance that he will be a criminal by the age of 25. And you just heard a clip from Elementary Genocide, a new documentary by Raheem Shabazz, owner of Rasha Entertainment, Inc., an award-winning journalist and filmmaker. The gifted writer's byline has been spotted on the pages of The Source, XXL Magazine, Vibe Magazine rolling out, Urban Enterprise Magazine, and AllHipHop.com, to name a few. Shabazz has appeared on BET, Stars in Black, and MTV News. He has interviewed an array of celebrities and executives, including media maven Tyler Perry, hip-hop legend 50 Cent, and entertainment icon Magic Johnson. As a documentary filmmaker, Raheem Shabazz executive produced Elementary Genocide, which exposes the socially engineered mechanism created by our government and utilizing the public school system to label elementary-aged African-American males as work-for-hire targets within the U.S. penal system. Elementary Genocide confirms this theory and seeks to educate parents, teachers and families so what we can so that we can reclaim our young men and ensure the future of our community Raheem now joins us by phone along with Bev and I <laughs> yes Mr. Shabazz welcome to bring it on hey how you doing brother awesome, I'm glad awesome. to be a part of this well we are certainly glad to have you here you have an incredible work that you have executive produced called Elementary Genocide. Would you give the our listening audience an overview of what they can expect if they are watching? Well, Elementary Genocide basically 
There's a call to action. It's more than just a documentary. Um, it explores the government and how the public school system utilizes the reading scores of third and fourth graders to determine how many prisons they're going to build in the next 10 to 15 years. Because we know that if you're not reading on grade level, by the time you're in the fourth or fifth grade, there's a 75% chance that you're going to end up in jail. And we look at those statistics. We also look at the zero tolerance rate and how that is fueling uh, children from the public school system and until the school to prison pipeline. Um, just recently, I was in North Carolina, and in North Carolina, more than 40% of juvenile court cases start in the school. So there's a direct relationship between the school and the prison system. And we explore that in the documentary, and we also offer solutions to dismantle uh, the prison industrial complex. Mr. Shabazz, you um, cite a lot of statistics on your, on, on, from the trailer on your website. Uh, one of which is that uh, our government incarcerates more black people than South Africa did during the height of apartheid. Absolutely. Which just, I mean, that, that just amazed me when I when I read it. Does your docu your documentary uh, go into that even further and in, in more detail? Um, yes, it goes into um, more detail, and a, a lot of it is um, statistical facts um, that can be verified. You know, whenever you have the Department of Justice, you know, um, in the White House, um, stating these facts. It's no longer urban myth. A lot of people, you know, when these statistics first came out, they thought it was just an urban myth. But it, it's real, it's reality, and it's a sad situation all across the board for children, for their parents, you know, because this this is the generation. This is the generation that, that is going to follow them. Mm -hmm. Now, Mr. Shabazz, you've had your work featured in The Source, Double XL, Vibe. Certainly being a writer is a lot different than taking on a documentary. How did you get yourself prepared for this project? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it was a cooling process to prepare yourself. Um, I always wanted to be involved in, in film, but my thing was journalism. I started out as a writer, so... It was a natural transition for me, you know, it's mm -hmm. the written words. I'm using uh, moving images to convey the message to the people. So the transition from um, writing and to doing film, it, it wasn't a hard transition. And Mr. Shabazz, isn't it, uh, or is it true that uh, part of the problem is uh, prisons for profit because that really gives them a, a, a strong incentive to keep those uh, prison beds filled. Absolutely, absolutely. Everything is fueled by money. You know, um, if you look at um, the charter school system, you know, a lot of people are saying, okay, we know that the educational system is not fully educating our youth, and they look at alternatives like the charter system, you know, the charter schools. But if you do any research, you will find that charter schools are nothing more than IPOs, which is really initial broadcast offering. And these charter school principals, they operate more like CEOs of companies, and they work closely with elected school board officials. 
and the charter schools are public, publicly funded and managed by private entities, just like the state and federal prison. And the business model is the same. It has been revealed that a lot of board members of charter school or board members of private prison, such as GEO and CCA, they're heavily invested in private prison. And I don't know if you were aware, but there's another documentary where um, it's called Cash for Kids. And there was a judge that was sentencing these young youth over 5,000 yeah. mm -hmm. of them. And I think within a five-year period, he made over $2.5 million. Um, well, he was just selling them to the private prison because they have a quota that they reach with the state where they want 90% of their beds occupied for the next 20 years. So it's all about money and it's big business. And if you look at it, it costs way far less to educate a child than it is to incarcerate them. I think in the city of New York, um, just to go to a city college is, is, is less than $8,000. But to imprison someone for one year in New York is over $40,000. It, it's staggering. Did you meet with any resistance when you were putting together the documentary? Were people willing to talk? Some was willing to talk, some was not. Um, I had people that signed on um, to be a part of the documentary, and then I guess, you know, maybe speaking with someone else or fully thinking about it, they had a change in mind. And, you know, they privately told me, Raheem, I believe in everything that you're doing and what you're saying is the absolute truth. But I work for the school system, and I don't think that would be a good look for me. And also, you know, um, that 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 was the only thing. Um, as far as resistance, um, it wasn't no real resistance. It was just people was reluctant to come forward and, and, and talk truth to power. But um, there are those, you know, that, you know, was going to tell the truth regardless and let the chips fall where they may. You know, because a lot of these, you, you have some teachers that, you know, have a vested interest in these kids. You know, these kids remind them of their children, and they want to see them do the best and be the best that they can be. But a lot of times their hands are tied because they work for a system that is in need of a pair. The curriculum is outdated. The tests that they take are a standardized tests that are culturally biased. Even the way that we're being taught, the children are being taught uh, in, in Western culture, um, they're being taught from a lineal aspect, you know, and they're not being taught from an Afrocentric point of view or anything that they can resonate with them and what they see in their community and how they grow up and things that they're used to, you know. Uh, Mr. Shabazz, you... Uh one of the solutions that you recommend is for parents to homeschool their children. So uh, are you suggesting that uh, none of the schools, charter and public, uh, uh, should be, you know, trusted? Well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that. I'm not going to suggest that. Okay. Um, there are a lot of charter schools that, that are doing exceptionally well. Um, there's one in Chicago, the south side of Chicago, uh, for the last four years, they had um, almost a 100% graduation rate. There's also Dr. Steve Perry in um, Connecticut, 
Uh, he's the number one uh, principal in Connecticut. Uh, his school is doing phenomenal. You know, um, but there's others that 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 are falling below. You know, um, the reading level. Um, if you look in the, in, the, in the state of Philadelphia, they closed 32 schools, and within months of closing 32 schools, they built a prison for 400 million dollars. You know, um, education is not a priority in that state. Um, the end result is that the kids is going to suffer. I was just reading something online. I have yet to do the research on it. But it's uh, um, a new model that they're trying out where it's going to be 100 kids in one classroom. And it's in a, a district that's predominantly black. And as you know, they, they try things out on minorities and see if it works. And then they're just doing across the board in every uh, city. Is this a technology-based kind of piece that will expose 100 students to um, this? Like I said, I, I, I read uh, briefly of it. I, did, I didn't get in all the way to it. Um, just the headline alone shocked me. And, I, and like I said, I, I really speed read through it. And it was one of those things where I was like, wow, I'm really have to get back and read this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's online. You know, um, Facebook, they've been going crazy talking about it. You know, and see that, and, and that's the good thing about it with, with social media. You know, a lot of things is being revealed about these school systems and what's going on, you know, with, with the zero tolerance. Whenever you can um, handcuff and arrest an eight-year-old girl because she was talking back to the teacher and disrupting the class, you know, that's adolescent behavior. You know, um, they said that the brain doesn't fully develop until you 25 years old. You know, um, their brain is not wired to function on that level as adults. So why would you, they're kids, and these are the things that kids do and children do, so why would you put them in handcuffs? You know, just um, when you look at the children when they go to school, school represents a prison. You know, before they even see a teacher and they enter the school, the first person they're greeted by is a resource officer, which is nothing more than a police officer with a badge, a gun, and a metal detector. And it's the same way when you go to visit someone in prison. So there's a direct correlation. Now, you mentioned certainly there were some schools that you've highlighted that are doing well. What are the best practices that you can see that help them sort of turn that tide and not become part of the statistics of which you're featuring? The, the curriculum. The curriculum. Mm-hmm. They're teaching them about their history. They teach them to look at themselves and to see themselves as great individuals. And they take them through the history where we was African kings and queens and that we invented a lot of things and what we contribute to society. In the public educational system, they're going to tell you that, you know, George Washington, uh, George Washington, you know, uh, he never told a lie. They're going to teach you Christopher Columbus discovered America, you know, and the kids know that's not true, you know, and none of that resonates with them. They have nothing in common with George Washington, and they certainly don't have nothing in common with Christopher Columbus. So, you know, when you teach Mm. stuff like that, and it's not resonating with the youth and you and, and then something more importantly that i want to highlight if i can mm-hmm. if you look at the teachers uh the teachers 73 percent of them 
doesn't look like the students that they are teaching. And they're predominantly female. And um, it's sad when you don't have strong African-American males teaching males or or intellectual sister teaching these young black children, you know, female children. And, you know, until that happens, it's going to be a sad state for us as a people. Did you ever get into the this aspect of how many young people are going into education anymore? Are they attracted to those types of fields? How do we get more teachers of color into pipelines and into systems to be hired? Well, in a documentary, uh, rapper Killer Mike said something that was real phenomenal. Um, he said that if they were to come up with a program where they allow free education for those that pursue the teaching field. They don't have to pay no student loans back and immediately graduating from school that they can go straight into teaching. You know, that will entice more of us to become, you know, teachers. And I I, I think a lot of people look at, you know, the salary of teachers. It's not the best paying job. So um, I think that, uh, you know, derails us from wanting to pursue the the teaching field. You know, I I apologize for jumping around here like we are, but this is such uh, an interesting topic and and it just just generates so many questions. But I want to ask, what are some of the other uh, statistics uh, that, that, uh, that you were able to uncover in your research? All right, we was able to find out that more than 50% of African-American males in the fourth grade did not meet the standard criteria in reading. And when that happens, eventually they drop out. And guess what? 80% of those dropouts end up in prison, and 40% of that is, 40% of that is 80%, which is African-American. You know, just those statistics alone, that, that, that is startling. Um, just like, you know, Dr. Carnell West said, rich children get taught and poor children get tested. And that's what's happening, you know, and that's why we're falling below the uh, national reading level is because we're not being taught. We're being tested. And these tests, like I said before, are, are culturally biased. Um, when they measure these tests and they measure the IQs, these come from individuals that was the father of uh, eugenics, uh, racy Nazi individuals that uh, will have you believe that you know we're one chromosome away from being farm animals, and these are the te- these are the type of people that we have teaching our, our babies. So where do we arm ourselves to go in and, uh, if you will, fight this? and really turn things around? How do we take control of the educational process for our children? Well, I, I encourage every parent to um, begin to educate their children at home. I'm a strong advocate of homeschooling. Uh, naturally, you know, with the economy the way it is, um, both parents have to work just to make, to, to make ends meet. So that might not be a viable option for them. Um, however, you know, you, you can do it two days out of a week and have another parent for the next three days. You know, you, you can alternate days that you teach. Um, also, um, 
you know, they, they, if you there's a um, website called uh, Test Your Kids um, by Yusuf Salam, and um, they talk about uh, opening up reading centers around the country. Um, that that's one of the ways to I- increase the the, the the reading level. There's a there's a lot of different ways that you can do that because you know in the documentary it focused about the third and fourth grade, which is their primary years. That's when we're able to grab the statistics um, because that's their formative years. But the school to prison pipeline starts earlier than that. It starts the first day a child walks into a kindergarten class. So you have to have them prepared when they, when, before they enter kindergarten. They need to know their ABCs. They need to have social skills. And they need to be ahead of everybody else in that classroom. Mr. Shabazz, when you talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, um, you mentioned that charter schools have an in- a financial incentive to to uh, in that whole thing. Is there a clear distinction between the roles of uh, public schools and charter schools? Again, within that within that conversation of uh, uh, no, there's not because a lot of charter schools is funded with public money the same way that. Um, the, the public school system is funded. Not all of their money comes from the public, but some of it does come from the public. So that's why a lot of them are not effective a, a, as they should be, and it's almost like a, a, a public school with just smaller classes. But that's something that's fairly new, though, isn't it, public funding for, for charter schools? Um, no. When, when, when they started charter schools, that's how, that's how, that's how they've been getting their funding. So for the parent who is not necessarily able to homeschool, it does require a lot of time, energy, and preparation to adequately educate a child. How do you work in systems, if you if that is your choice, to be a part of a public school system? How do you work with the corporation to really get what you need for your child? Well, I, I believe that a lot of parents are already homeschooling and don't even know it. You know, mm-hmm. when you okay. sit down and you help your, your, your children with their math or with their reading or if you give them an assignment to read a book. I know when I was coming up, we had to read books and do a book report. That's homeschooling. You're doing it without even knowing about it. But for those that are, that are not in a position to do it full time, then um, I, I suggest, you know, that there's homeschools. There's homeschoolers that have, like, schools in, in their house. And in community centers, I, 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 another option would be to send them to them. And um, if you look at homeschooling, a lot of people don't know this, is that you don't have to have a certification to homeschool, especially when you're doing it um, in their uh, formative years. Now, when they get to high school and different things like that, there's certain courses that I think you have to have. And I do recommend that you have some sort of education when when they get to that level. But um, initially, you do, as long as you uh, have all the paperwork and everything signed, and you follow the letter of the law, you know you you can homeschool. You know, um, but a lot of people are not being taught that. You know, um, and that's on the internet as well. Um, also, in, in the state of um, Seattle. 
um, they give you money. They actually pay you to homeschool your child. And I think that's something that should be adopted all across the board in every country, every county, and every city. Do you know what kind of results they're getting from that program? Um, no, I, I, I don't know the results. I don't know the results for that particular program, but what I can tell you, according to statistics, those that are homeschooled are, are, are less likely to end up in the, in, the, in the prison system. That's a known fact. It would certainly be interesting to have more statistics on that in terms of what you're saying. You certainly do have a homeschooling perspective in this, and I'm not saying it's wrong. Is the answer just to totally walk away from our public schools? Um, it, it, you know what? It, it, I, I don't think that um, in reality that that's going to happen. I think public schools is, is always going to exist. But this is not something that just happened overnight. This is a systematic plan that that been designed and that been in existence for years, and it, it, it's not it's not going to go away in one day. So the only alternative is to teach your, your children. If you have to send them to public school, when they come home, you need to re-educate them as well. And for our listening audience, we're speaking to Mr. Rahim Shabazz documentary filmmaker and executive producer of Elementary Genocide. In terms, I'm going to turn a corner from the actual application and the research to how you get your work distributed. Did you choose to go internet? How did you choose to distribute? Oh, as far as the documentary? Uh Uh-huh. We have have a a, a non-exclusive deal with several different uh, distributors across, across the country. Um, the documentary is doing exceptionally well on elementarygenocide.com. You can go there and get it. You can also go to Your Black World. They are selling exceptionally well on there. Um, I have a list of retailers, uh, independent retailers that are, that are, that are selling it. Um, that's on the website. Also, um, you can pre-order it. You know, a lot of people like to uh, order DVDs on Amazon. So as of uh, September 23rd, you'll be able to order the actual DVD on there. If you want to just get the digital file and download it and watch it on your computer, as opposed to a physical DVD, you will be able to do that. And um, we will be on iTunes, um, and we're looking at a couple of other uh, digital platforms to present it on. And who knows, maybe one day we will be on Netflix, Redbox, and HBO. That's right. Think think mass distribution. You're going at it. Now, in terms of the cost for a download or for um, a DVD, what can a retailer or what can a person expect to pay? Um, you can expect to pay anywhere from 15 to $20. You know, um, if you go to the website, elementarygenocide.com, uh, it's uh, $20. Um, me personally, when I'm um, doing my screenings, I've been screening all across the country. Um, I, I've been to North Carolina, New York, Connecticut, Boston, San Diego. Um, next month, I'll be in L.A. And um, I have uh, screenings and speaking engagements all the way to the end of the, uh, of this year. And when I'm out, you know, we give them away for ten dollars. You know, because um, at the end of the day, it's really not about the money. It's more so about the message. 
Well, two questions. Um, yeah, and, then, and then, uh, hold on. And if you're lucky enough to catch the bootleggers in Brooklyn and <laughs> on 125th in Harlem, you might get it for five dollars. <laughs> we are a long way from Brook, uh, Brooklyn, but let me ask you this: How long? Two questions. How long is the documentary? And number two, do you know if anyone is using it in the classroom? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's being used in the classroom. I just, I when I when you had called me earlier and i told you i was getting in the elevator i was just leaving clayton county uh court and i was uh just interviewing the judge and this is one of the most radical judges in the nation and he developed a program where now they have an 82 uh, percent uh decrease in arrest for uh juveniles coming from the school system and um his program and his policy and and the things that he implemented um, is being taught, I think, in 18 different states now. Um, so there, there, there is a lot of people that are doing it. I forgot what your question is. I'm sorry. What was your question again? Uh, how What's the duration? How long is the documentary? Oh, the documentary is 60 minutes. Okay. So we're not talking an incredibly long length of time to make an investment to sit down and watch the same length of House of Cards. You can sit down and really educate yourself on a perspective of what's happening in our educational system. Indeed, indeed. Now, would you tell individuals one more time exactly what website they need to go in order to find your work? You can find it at www.elementarygenocide.com. And I think we are going to wrap it up here. What I heard you say, Mr. Shabazz, is that really whether you are at a home school or whether you're in charter or whether you're in public education, it is time to take the results very seriously for our young people and to do some radical things that we haven't done in a long time and really lead the way in terms of our education for our young people. Am I correct? Absolutely. All right. Wonderful. L.A.S. L.A.S. Yes. <laughs> All right. We would like to thank tonight's Bring It On guest, Raheem Shabazz, and Bring It On contributor, Cornelius. He's not here. <laughs> William Hosea is in the saddle tonight and in the seat beside me for that insightful discussion on Mr. Shabazz's documentary, Elementary Genocide. To learn more about this film and to purchase it online, www.elementarygenocide.com. As mentioned at the top of the hour, the Bring It On crew has prepared a special broadcast of relevant, memorable interviews from our archives. Our next feature is uh, with D- David Leander Williams, who is an author, a collector of memorabilia and historical artifacts of, and information about the African-American history, particularly slavery and African-American music history. The hosts for this segment are once again Bev Smith and William Hosea. Mr. Williams has used his vast knowledge to write a book about the entertainment empire that developed on Indiana Avenue from its beginning in 1821 until its demise in the 1970s. His book is entitled Indianapolis Jazz, The Masters, Legends, and Legacy of Indiana Avenue. The book examines some of the nation's most influential jazz artists and the performance venues that once lined this vibrant Indiana Avenue thoroughfare that were important stops on the Chitlin circuit that provided platforms for greats like Freddie Hubbard and Jimmy Coe. 
Here now is that interview from April 2014. Mr. Williams is a collector of memorabilia, historical artifacts, and information about African American history, particularly slavery and African American music history. He has used his vast knowledge to write a book about the entertainment empire that developed on Indiana Avenue from its beginnings in 1821 until its demise in the 1970s. He is joined this evening by bringing on contributor Liz Mitchell, and he is ready to share some of the exciting history contained in the pages. Of his new book. With that, David and Liz, welcome to Bring It On. Hey, thanks Thank for having us. Now, let's start off with you two telling us a little bit about your history, because you, exactly. you know each other. Exactly, how you come well. to know each other, yes. Well, um, my dad, in a, in a roundabout way, helped raise David. Mm -hmm. And I met David uh, about 12 years ago mm -hmm. uh, at a, a mutual friend's house. And we were sitting around talking, and he was talking about his collection. I was talking about my collection, and he heard my maiden name, and then he said, oh, I know your dad, because in sixth grade, he gave me a good spanking for oh. being bad in school. Uh-huh. <laughs> and from then on, we've, we've talked to each other, and he's been invited down to the show. This was pre his book. Mm -hmm. He was starting to write the book, and then now I'm so glad that you've come back since mm -hmm. you're... You've written your book, it's completed, and it's for sale. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Indianapolis, and David grew up in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. and we both at one time lived in Lockfield Gardens, mm -hmm. which is right on Indiana Avenue. And back in the heyday, Indiana Avenue was comparative like being in Harlem, New York, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the music, great food, great restaurants, and just a sense of community like you wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you both are so entrenched in your love for history that's even more of a common bond. Oh, yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Now, Mr. Williams, you have a special event coming up to actually promote your book. Would you tell the audience a little yes, bit about uh, it? I will be at the uh, Topos uh, Greek Restaurant at uh, 4th and... 8th. 8th oh, and Walnut. 8th yeah, and Walnut. I'll be there April the, uh, I mean, April the 30th at 6 o'clock. I'll have a book signing, and I will uh, also be bringing the Cliff Ratliff uh, Quintet. They'll be playing there. And hopefully we're going to have the, the great uh, Dave Baker and his lovely wife, Elida, uh, to be there also. And I I'm going to be, I'll bring uh, several artifacts from my, uh, you know, my vast collection dealing with Dave Baker and then other Indiana Avenue greats. So I'm really looking forward to that. And it'll be, there'll be a book signing at 6.30, and uh, there, then the Cliff Ratliff uh, Quintet will perform. Okay. Okay. Now, if I wanted to go back to Indianapolis and... Uh, and educate myself or experience some of this chitlin circuit. Mm -hmm. How, what, what, what do I need to do? Where would I go? And what, and what could I expect to see when okay. I get there? Now, we, we all understand that the concept of the chitlin circuit. No, we don't. Oh, no. Okay, let's do The audience may not. Yes. Okay, the audience uh -huh. may not. Okay. Uh -huh. Let's, uh, let's uh, go back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and the 50s. You know, there was a... Uh, Bell's uh, childhood. Keep going. Keep right, going. okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, with the, uh, the system of rigid segregation... That's cool, William. That's all right. <laughs> With the system of rigid segregation say, uh, and racism, there were venues where African-American entertainers could not perform be because, uh, simply because of racism. So some inter enterprising uh, men and women in the Midwest and, and the South put their heads together and said, well, since we can't, our entertainers cannot uh, perform on the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Caucasian circuit, we would develop our own circuit. So in the uh, various uh, uh, cities in the Midwest and the South, Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis, Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis, uh, uh, Cincinnati, Dayton, and those cities, 
enterprising uh, entrepreneurs uh, got together and said, we will have venues that will be specifically for our African-American entertainers. So they won't have to worry about coming to town and not having a place to stay or having a, a venue in which to perform. We will, we, we will uh, establish these various venues around the country. So that's how the, the Chitlin Circuit was established back in the 40s and 50s. Now, is the concept of the Chitlin Circuit done away with altogether, or has there been some revival of it in recent years? In recent years, there's, there's been revival uh, mainly in the, uh, the, the blues idiom. Because now I see posters in uh, Indianapolis uh, with uh, the various blues stars uh, from the Midwest and the South performing at small venues in Indianapolis. Because what's interesting is that many of the, the larger blues uh, uh, establishments, especially in Chicago, uh, uh, African-Americans aren't performing there. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have, you know, they have uh, dis- discovered the blues, and many African-American blues uh, you know, uh, entertainers, again, uh, they're, they're facing racism and mm-hmm. to a certain degree. They don't, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're white uh, uh, people singing the blues. And I mean, I'm not making a right? statement, mm-hmm. but this is just what happens. So yeah. they have to, when they come to Indianapolis, they will perform at, at the smaller uh, uh, blues establishments. So in that sense, there still is a, a, a remnant of the Chitlin Circuit still in operation. Last year in Chicago, I don't know if you remember an incident in one of the neighborhoods, too many blacks supposedly showed up at a place uh, and the yes. owner said, we got to shut it down because there's too many of you here. Mm-hmm. We don't mind a few but there's too many. Mm-hmm. And he actually closed mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the his business mm-hmm. for the evening. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm most familiar with the Chitlin Circuit when we're talking about theater mm-hmm. and other elements, and there's still some revival in that way. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems that that concept is still alive. Mm-hmm. Does it necessarily mean a negative? Is that a... Or is the Chitlin Circuit, can it be spun as a positive as well? I would see it as a positive in that at a time period when African-American entertainers could not perform in venues, it was like an, an oasis of, uh, of, of hope for our people. So I, I view it in a positive sense, historically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though it, it, it was a, uh, a reaction to racism, but it still gave our entertainers a, uh, a, a venue in which to perform and, and show their wares. So I see it in a, in a very positive vein. And also our, some of our own promoters and business owners also a chance to host right. and have acts that they wouldn't normally have mm-hmm. and expose folks to Absolutely. a different art form. Mm-hmm. One question I have uh, with the Chitlin Circuit, not only was that black entertainers, we know, mm-hmm. but the audience could be black because, you know, audience usually were white for mm-hmm. black performers. Right. Mm-hmm. But this, the Chilling Circuit, mean black performers, black audience? Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, especially on Indian Avenue, in the book I uh, highlight uh, uh, various uh, entertainers who were, were jazz people who were white who would come to the avenue and, and, and be, be received with open with open arms, you know, very, very warmly. Okay. Because in that, uh, uh, I in my research, I found out that even it was during a time of virulent racism, there was a different code in the... Uh, uh, in the jazz community, they would say, "If you can play, if you're pink, purple with polka dots, if you can play, you know, come on in and play." So many of the, the uh, performers who who perform with West Montgomery's uh, brothers, Monk and Buddy, uh, uh, they were Richard Crabtree, Benny Barth. They were white, but they were welcome on the avenue. So you would see white performers and whites in the in the uh, in the audience, and they had no problem because the African American community was very very welcoming to the uh, to, to to the white patrons, and there was no problem. Now, Liz, you mentioned that uh, the, the the Chitlin Circuit in Indianapolis, or in, I'm sorry, Indiana Avenue, mirrored the Harlem scene. Now, did that Chitlin Circuit extend all the way to Harlem? Or do you know? Uh, 
But some of the same entertainers that uh-huh. performed mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. came to Indianapolis. Indianapolis, uh, the Indiana Avenue in Indianapolis back in the day was the place to be. Mm-hmm. On the weekends, that was black. In fact, all the West Side there was black. Mm-hmm. Where IU Med Center sat, that was the black community. Mm-hmm. It surrounded and was near Christmas Addicts High School. Mm-hmm. So you had your own high school. <laughs> And there was a grade school there, which was sent tore down. Mm-hmm. They were going to tear down Christmas Attics, but everybody yeah, threw a fit. Yeah, yes. And that was not the thing. You didn't want to go there and touch Christmas Attics. Mm-hmm. So they saved that, but the, the grade school's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Indiana, in its heyday, that's where we went. That was our folk. We were comfortable. And it was like coming home. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was the place to be. Place and to you be. talk about good food, oh, the yeah. restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, just... Th- and that you was could, it. to answer William's question along with Liz, you could find versions of the Chitlin Circuit. It could be in Gary, it could be in Detroit, oh, yes. mm-hmm. it could be sure. in Harlem, mm-hmm. it could be v- venues across the country. Mm-hmm. So that similar thread mm-hmm. happened everywhere. Mm-hmm. But in particular with Indianapolis jazz, mm-hmm. what kind of, as the kids say, what kind of swerve or swagger did <laughs> Indiana Avenue bring that perhaps other areas didn't necessarily have? What was special? What was so special about Indian Avenue is that the the uh, entertainers of various genres, uh, uh, family uh, in the 1900s we had the family band uh, the people of uh, the Oscar de Paris, Sidney de Paris. They were out of uh, Crawfordsville, Indiana. They performed, and in the 1920s you had Noble Sisso, Ubi Blake, uh, the Ink Spots. There was so, there's such a kind of a. Uh, 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 so many different types of music that all came together, and the music was was great. And, and each performer in his own genre was the best of the best. So you could, as a kid, I remember walking down the avenue from uh, Lockfield Gardens on down to the walk, the Madam Walker Theater. We can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. And I'd walk past one uh, venue out here, the blues, the really mm-hmm. down home Mississippi, gut bucket blues. Then a, a couple of steps later, uh, uh, I would hear the knacking Cole at, at the. Uh, at the sunset, he he would yep. have been at the sunset. Uh, Nat King Cole, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Sarah Vaughn, uh, all the the the, uh, the greatest of the great would be right there on the avenue. And then you could go further up, and there would be uh, rhythm and blues people. You may see Jackie Wilson, and mm-hmm. and I have a, a story. We could kind of jump ahead a little. Well, in 1960, I went into uh, I was a, I was a freshman at Chris's Alex High School, and I had just made the freshman basketball team, and I was so happy about that because everybody wanted, wanted to play basketball at Attic. So, so I remember rather than going home one, one evening, I kind of found myself going down to the avenue because they said there was this guy who was coming in town who was a, a left-handed guitar player. And I said, wow. So what I did, I ran to Lockfield. I was, I'm, I was six foot four or five, skinny, you know, at that time period. And uh, I painted a mustache with my mother's mascara on. I took my daddy's hat and I put or pull it over, over my ears to look like an old guy. And I went down to a place that was called The Place to Play. And at that time, they, there was a band there that were called Baby Leon and the Presidents. And at, so this, these two gentlemen, I, would, I will reveal their name later on, I want to shock you, came to town and they were promised a gig at the Brass Rail, which was a white establishment downtown on Ohio Street. The club owner did not know they were African-American, so when they traveled to, uh, from uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, to the Brass Rail, they stopped at the door and said, oh, I thought you were white. You can't come in here. I'm sorry. 
So they said, well, since we, we made the trip, can we can you give us gas money? He said, no, we don't have anything to give you. So they, they went on the avenue, they found out that there was a, a battle of the bands at the place of play. So they said, oh, this guy and the buddy went in, so may, they said, maybe we can get up there, we can perform, and we can have loud applauses, and we can win the, what, $100 at the place of play. They went on stage, and they performed. Oh, they sweated, and they hollered, and they screamed, and played, and everybody clapped. The next group that came on was a group from Louisville, Kentucky. They were called the Presidents for Baby Leon. They performed, and the, cloud, the crowd uh, uh, clapped louder, and they, they, they were uh, well-received. So, uh, consequently, uh, these, the two gentlemen who came to town uh, did not win, so they didn't have any money. So, I remember clearly going out the door, cause, uh, I, and I said, I went to the, to the stage, I said, uh, uh, excuse me, I said, I, I really like your plan. I said, I'm here to play. He said, can you tell me wh- who are you and where do you come from? He said, oh, my name is Jimi Hendrix. And I'm from, uh, you know, he was coming out of Seattle, Washington at that time. I met Jimi Hendrix when I was 14 years old at the place he played. And people don't realize that he got his start on Indiana Avenue, a, a catacorner from the Walker Theater at the place he played. And that's, that's my, little, uh, my, my little story. And they did a, sig- a segment on Across Indiana where I talk about that on Channel WFYI uh, television station. Yeah. Who, who was the other guy? Uh, his name was Billy Cox. He 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 later went with uh, he was uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix's drummer, and he was also I think from Seattle. And he went with Jimi Hendrix back to Clarksville, and they uh, formed a group called King Casuals for about a year. Then they broke up. The next thing I know, I was in college and uh, heard something about Woodstock, and that's when he really got was, be, became internationally famous. But I, I met Jimi Hendrix when I was 14 years old. Well, could you tell the audience who else came out of Indiana Avenue besides Jimi? Because there's a lot of folk, mm-hmm. and we like. I know the audience wants to hear besides Jimi Hendrix, who else? I know the Hampton Sisters. Okay, the Hampton Sisters. We had the great guitarist, great who I who would come to my house. He was a good buddy of my of my father. West Montgomery would come to my house and play on our porch, but I didn't know that he was going to be West Montgomery. In the, you know, I just saw he, he was Daddy's buddy. Right. He would come over to our house on Saturday at five fifteen West Twenty Fourth Street <coughs> and play on our uh, front porch, and I didn't know. And then also you'd have people like the great Freddie Hubbard, who was from the east side of Indianapolis, but he would come down to, on the avenue to perform with, with other uh, uh, greats who left town. One, Larry, uh, the bassist, Larry Ridley, he's in New York. Virgil Jones passed, he passed about two years ago. He was a great trumpet uh, player. Uh, then you had James uh, Spalding, who, who was in, he's still performing in New York. He's played with everybody, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, everybody. And then you'd have uh, uh, people who, Left here all too early. Uh, there was in my book. I talk about a gentleman by the name of Carl Perkins, who was from the Lockville area. He uh, performed on the avenue with Willis Kirk, the uh, great uh, drummer, who retired as the president of San Francisco State College. And Carl uh, uh, Perkins, a uh, great pianist, uh, left here and he went to to California. And he was discovered by Miles Davis. And he at that time, Miles Davis said Carl Perkins was the, the greatest pianist he had uh, he had ever heard. But unfortunately, uh, Carl had problems, and he uh, died at an early age. <coughs> you mentioned Wes Montgomery just being a friend of your dad. Mm-hmm. Did, was your dad always surrounded by music? Was yeah, that they would come part to, of his? Yeah, they would come to our house. I remember, and my memory is very good, they'd come on the weekend. And I, I, I remember the conversation, and Wes Montgomery would always talk about one of his buddies from the, the West Coast by the name of Pony Poindexter. And I remember that name so clearly that uh, a pony, yeah, well, me and Pony Poindexter, I, I was gigging out on the West Coast at the Lighthouse in Frisco, but Pony Point Dexter is Pony Point Dexter's at. But I remember clearly I'm talking about Pony Point Dexter. <coughs> then there are other people too that that, that, that would, would perform with, with West. A gentleman by the name of Mingo Jones from um, St. Joseph, Missouri, who's in the book. 
uh, a pianist from Detroit called Errol Van Riper, fantastic pianist. Uh, uh, bassist uh, 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 Dale, his name uh, um, uh, Dale. Uh, I can't think of the, the first name. He's in my, in my, my book. Uh, Dale is the last name. <coughs> but but they all perform with with West Montgomery along with his brothers, uh, uh, Monk and Buddy. Mm-hmm. They were all great. Mm-hmm. You uh, mentioned the Hampton sisters, and you also mentioned quite a quite a few men. Were there any female solo artists? That oh yes, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I, they were, we're, I'm going to uh, I'm producing a. A program where I uh, have contracted a fantastic vocalist who was a grad student here at IU maybe five or seven, six years ago. Her name, her name is Karen Taborn, and she's going to return to Indianapolis and she's going to interpret uh, many of the female vocalists from the 1950s. And they mm-hmm. would be Flo Garvin, Helen Fox, Helen Fox Walker, Lois Blaine, Sarah McLawler. These were all great. Uh, these were all great uh, uh, female vocalists who performed and. Uh, I listened to a lot of uh, female vocalists, but when I heard her perform at a jazz club in Indianapolis, I said, she's the one. So she, uh, I will be bringing her to Indianapolis to uh, reinterpret this music. And, and they, they, were, they were great uh, female vocalists. Okay. And putting together your book, will it be narratives as you're discussing with us? How did you put the book together? Well, actually, the book was, uh, I go back to my days at Christmas Alex High School. I had an English teacher, but I had a doctor. James Gaither, uh, uh, Blanche Ferguson, and Doris Bradford. And they always instilled in all of this, the, the English students this concept called the stream of consciousness. So I took that stream of consciousness to the 10th the, uh, power. And when I had my first manuscript, when Leas came in Indianapolis, I, had, I think I had, uh, had 20 chapters and uh, I think uh, 84,000 words. So when I went to IU Press on three, I submitted my, my uh Manuscripts three times to IU Press, and I was rejected three times. They said it was too, uh, there's too much information. So they advised me to, to rewrite. So I re- rewrote, and I was still I was re- rejected again. So uh, uh, I, I was able to contact the uh, uh, the uh, History Press out of Charleston, South Carolina. They said, hey, we'll, we'll take it in a New York second. So, But uh, the first book, I focus uh, on the entertainment scene. The book that, is, that I'm about halfway finished, that I had to call from the, the, the first book, I would deal more with the social, economic, and political history of Indian Avenue, a survey from 1821 to 1970. So uh, I, uh, this, the first book's entertainment, the second book will be pure history. And only, I'll talk about the, uh, the flood of 1821, the founding of the churches in the 1830s, Bethel A.M.B. Church. Oh yes, right that, downtown. Now you know about Bethel A.M.B. Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jones, Tab- uh, Jones uh, Tabernacle Church, I'll go up to the uh, the uh, Civil War, and then two events that, that uh, occurred uh, right before the Civil War. One event was in 1845. A, a sexton from Bethel Amy Church was returning from the circle, and he was uh, jumped by a group of the, uh, they were called scalawags. You know, they were mm-hmm. Irish and German uh, uh, residents, and, and they uh, kicked his brains out. Mm-hmm. His, uh, his name was Tucker, you know, J- uh, John Tucker. I write about that. Then I, and, uh, 10 years uh, later, I write about a, a John Freeman who was mistakenly identified as a runaway slave. And his story is very similar, reminiscent of the story, the, the great movie, the one the Academy Award. 12, 12 Years of Slaves. Slave. Mm-hmm. So I, I was writing about that uh, three and four years ago, but, but the exact scenario where someone sees you on the street and says, hey, are you Willie? Don't you remember me? I'm your master. You know, I'm going to take you back to slavery. You escaped and you owe me, blah, blah, blah. I write about that. I also write about the first identifiable African-American a business on the avenue in 1861, and I, I was even uh, happy. I was lucky and fortunate enough to find a photo photo of her, her uh, uh, of the uh, um, 
of this this lady, but I'll, I'll talk about her also. Her name is uh, Nancy Smothers. She had a haberdashery, a beanery, and a rooming house in 1861. And so, from, and from there, I go up to the turn of the century. I talk about the uh, the uh, the speedway, the 500 mile track, which at that time was very, very, very racist. Very. Blacks, blacks couldn't very. go there up, yeah. up until the 60s. You know, mm-hmm. the 500 mile track. But uh, be, uh, be, but because of that racism, African Americans in the entrepreneurial spirit developed our own racing circuit. And you've probably mm-hmm. seen the, this the videos about that. You know, the uh, golden glory. The golden glory. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Golden, golden glory. So I, I talk about that. I also talk about the uh, the uh, lynchings that occurred in Marion, Indiana. And Major Taylor, yeah. the mm-hmm. uh, great uh, uh, bi- uh, bi- bicyclist, uh-huh. you know, who went around the world, and from there I work into the forties, and I'll, I'll talk about other uh, people who were legendary on Indian Avenue. And I spoke uh, with Liz. I asked her if she, by her being such a young chicken, she didn't know hey. about. Yeah, she, she didn't know much about <laughs> about Minnie Mucci, the lady from the, the Avenue. Who, My uh-huh. dad told me about the legend. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh-huh. I, I read about Minnie Mucci and also about Anna Red. A very very nice lady on the avenue, but don't don't cross. Don't mess her. with Anna. You don't you don't mess with her. You know she she was noted. I, there's one portion in the book where I talk about where, where there was some gentleman who owed her money, and she saw him in one of the clubs, one of the not the sunset of the kind of the bourgeois clubs, but one of the clubs back in the back. So she wanted her money, so she picked him up and slammed him. Oh, you know, and beat him to a pulp. She went to court and. Uh, in beating her with the coat to a pub, she used other, uh, instant, I mean, other uh, uh, furniture in the club. So when she went before the the judge, the judge looked at Anna and said, "Anna, said you beat this man to a pub." He said, "Said, uh, said why did you beat that man so without mercy with that chair for about a half an hour?" She looked up at the judge and said, "Judge, I couldn't lift that table to save my life." She <laughs> <wasn't>, <laughs> so she chose. Had she had she the chair, something she could handle. She had, you know, gotten that table. She would have whipped him with the table. So she said, "I couldn't. If I could lift that, that I couldn't lift that table to save my life." But I talk about her and the other. Colorful uh, characters on the avenue that people have forgotten about, and I and I, I do this for the, the main reasons that uh, to not only the history for this generation, but for the people who are coming up who don't know their history. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very. Uh, I've been very, very. Uh, ahead, uh, uh, yeah, about this the, the the murder of this young man in Indianapolis, and that all goes back to the fact that many of our young people, not only in Indianapolis but around the country, we do not know our history. I have a two-part question for you. Um, number one, when did Indiana Avenue uh, realize its most popular and prosperous period? And then second, when did the realization finally set in that it's not what it used to be? Okay, I would say during the 1940s and up until maybe the mid-50s, uh, I have in my collection photographs of many of the, the great stars who would come to, to, to Indiana Avenue. I mentioned before, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Sarah Vaughan, uh, 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 Mantan Moreland, the comedian, uh, uh, many of the, the New Orleans uh, uh, blues people, Louis Armstrong, uh, they would all come to Indiana Avenue and they would perform at various uh, venues. And some of them would come and perform at the white venues downtown where blacks were not uh, permitted to enter. And then afterwards, they would come down the avenue mm-hmm. and perform for, for our people. So the 1940s was the most popular. The 1940s, period. and all, if, you, if you can name any great star during that time period, uh, nine times out of ten, they performed. Nat King Cole, he was a, I remember seeing Nat King Cole as a little kid uh, standing in front of the uh, sunset. This was about 1955, and not knowing who he was, but they mentioned, they pointed to him and said, oh, that's Nat King Cole. I didn't know who Nat King Cole was, mm-hmm. but I remember the name, Nat King Cole. Mm-hmm. And the demise of it. Yes, the demise, I would say, uh, 
in the uh, 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 60s, uh, I was in school in Colorado, and I would get the Indianapolis Recorder, which was the organ of the uh, African-American community. And by reading the articles, I could see that things were happening. I, I read one article where, as Liz talked about, there was a, a grade school uh, next to, uh, it was a George Washington, not George Washington, called the Booker T. Washington School 17, right. next to X High School. And there's an article that said the city uh, uh, mysteriously and uh, 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 demolished that uh, that structure, and that was a structure very dear to our hearts. I'm telling you. So how they mis- uh, mistakenly and mysteriously demolished it, that, that's something to, to, to question. So during that time period, the three, in my book, I, I, I focused on three components. The first was the fact that, I hate to admit it, in Lockfield, there were regulations that uh, if you uh, uh, if you were able to get a better job and make a little more money, you had to move. So the people, you know, who were had the great jobs moved out of Lockfield, and it slowly be, began to go down. So that uh, the integration, uh, when we were able to afford to go off the avenue and take it, our black dollars with us, the the highway system coming in and, and cutting through the, the area. Through the black neighborhood, the black cut neighborhood. it in half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the encroachment of IUPUI. So during the 60s and 70s, that's when the the uh, uh, the uh, add the entertainment uh, component with it on the van. The city had a plan to put IUPUI there. And that, folks, will end our last segment for the evening. As we mentioned at the top of the hour, the Bring It On crew has prepared a special rebroadcast of relevant, memorable interviews from their archives. We hope you enjoyed the special broadcast. Bring It On has an open submission policy. If you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and every anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On's producer is Clarence Boone. Production support comes from Kira Greenberg. Bring It On's board engineer is yours truly, Chantal, and I'm also your announcer for today. Our original theme music was created by Jamel Afram. Be sure to tune in next Monday on August 12th at 6 p.m. for another exciting episode of Bring It On on WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.